0: The Daily Dose is produced by Authentic U in collaboration with North Coast HIV and Related Programs, also known as North Coast HARP. It's jointly funded by North Coast HARP and the New South Wales Ministry of Health.
1: And I'm Mandy Nolan. And you're listening to The Daily Dose. The Daily Dose is a podcast about the life stories of people who inject drugs. We'll be discussing substance use, addiction, self-harm, trauma and other topics that may not be appropriate for certain listeners. We encourage all of you to be in a safe space when listening to this podcast. This week, we speak with a couple. One of them is a young person who's had a lot of trauma in their life. While well, nearly every person we spoke to making this podcast has experienced trauma, this story probably hit the
0: hardest. Very often, when it comes to drug use, people have lived experience of mental health issues as well. It can make navigating the system even trickier.
1: So, that being the case, understanding trauma and its role in healthcare and the outcomes is crucial. Sashi from the Needle Syringe Program, NSP, explains how they address trauma.
2: So NSPs generally um, are set up to operate from a trauma-informed care perspective. So we try and give clients as much autonomy, agency over the way that they access services. We ask them, what do you need from us? Um, and that is actually a privilege that we have that not many other health services have because of the nature of what they do because they need to be aware of the risks of overdose and and things like that we are in a privileged position because um we can say to clients come here we won't collect any information we we don't need anything from you we actually just want to provide you with whatever you need within reason um so yeah but but so yes Coming from a perspective of understanding trauma, understanding complex PTSD, understanding PTSD, understanding how childhood experiences then impact on adults, impact on um, people's abilities to make, to, to plan, to put things into place. So saying to someone, just stop using, is really simple, um, but it's not effective because it's not a simple. Um, somebody may desperately want to change the way they're living, whether it be around drugs or whatever it is, but they may not necessarily have the tools or their brain development from their childhood experiences might have been such that they're not actually able to do that. So all health workers, especially frontline health workers, understanding that and understanding how it manifests in people's presentations is really important.
0: When experiences are traumatic, the pathways getting the most use are those in response to the trauma. This reduces the formation of other pathways needed for adaptive behaviour. Trauma in early childhood can result in disrupted attachment, cognitive delays and impaired emotional regulation.
1: Many associate childhood trauma with child abuse... But other stress-inducing and traumatic experiences linked to an elevated vulnerability to addiction include neglect, the loss of a parent, witnessing domestic or other physical violence and having a family member who suffers from a mental illness. Those who had experienced such things during childhood have shown an increased tendency to become dependent on alcohol and drugs. So trauma pretty well sets you up for addiction That's why it's so important to hear these stories. For people who already feel very marginalised, sometimes reducing stigma is the first step
0: to better health outcomes. So in this episode, we meet Manny and Hayden. They're a couple. It's clear they're very much in love all through the conversation they hold hands and reach out to each other for support. They finish each other's sentences.
1: Yeah, it's really lovely. They've got this tangible intimacy and it's really clear that they've been through quite a bit.
0: A warning too for anyone listening, there are some tough moments in Hayden's story. This episode talks about suicide. The first person we hear from is Manny.
3: I turned 54 in a few days, so.
1: Happy birthday.
3: Yeah, it's... (laughs) It's amazing to be at that age, but, you know, like I still feel like I'm about 30. Um, yeah, so. You're really young at heart, aren't you? Yeah, very, very much young at heart.
4: That's why we're gay, to, that's why we're gay together so well. That's
1: so nice. I, I really want to know, too, how you two met. Mm. Like you, you just, you seem like such a. A, a very, I can tell because you're talking about your, what you're cooking for dinner, which is chicken. What is it? Chicken.
3: Coriander and mint chicken. Curry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yum.
1: <laughs> you're I'm in that all exciting all time, time where you're <laughs> still planning dinners.
3: Yeah. Which <laughs> yeah, is lovely. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, uh, how did you two meet?
3: Um, how, how did you start off, Manny? Okay. Um, it was actually through a drug deal. Um, yeah. They are, mm-hmm. he, Hayden and his cousin were like looking for. Their drug of choice, and um, they came to my place to see um, brother.
4: Like at the time, it was ice, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, yeah. yeah, For me, it was. um, But I remember specifically that day um, needing to get some type of opiate. I yeah, because you weren't really well at all, and you were in pain. Yes. Um. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I just took a liking to Hayden straight away. I kind of felt sorry for the way that his cousin was, like, speaking to him in the car and he was actually dealing with withdrawal and driving him around, like. Yeah. Yeah, I remember
4: that. It was um, Mm. being really horrible to me and Manny was so lovely to me and, um, um, cause I remember my cousin saying, um, remember, um, oh, like, don't, um, have anything to do with, um, Manuel, cause he's, um, got HIV. And I thought, <laughs> well, so, okay. And then, um, uh, basically when, uh, the first chance I got, I said, I oh, see so you got HIV, you're undetectable. And I said, okay, let's, you know, what are you, are are you interested in me? (laughs) And we, yeah.
1: For people who have an undetectable viral load, the likelihood of them transmitting to another person is significantly reduced but not completely removed. It's still best practice for your health and wellbeing to have protected sex and to not share injecting equipment. That's why the NSP is so important. By providing access to clean needles, they stop bloodborne transmission.
0: So it sounds we like you, there. you kind of, um, you kind of made the move. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
4: uh, I was just so, um, I instantly really, I don't know if it was the drug or not, um, but it felt like I fell in love instantly. Um, but uh, but after um, like so long, like after um, all this time, um, it no, I think it was the drug. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but now, like, come on, he wants I to hear feel, something else. doesn't <laughs> Well, it's just like I mean, I mean, not um, sorry, I
3: I I'm not good at explaining things. I think the I drug mean, just kind of broke insert, down yeah. the. Um, inhibition barriers that we all have, you know. Yeah, we all have like self insecurity. So thoughts. how how long ago? So how long have you been sort of um, with three each other? years? That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, like up and down, um, in between each other's drug use, yeah. and you know that in itself is confronting to our behaviours and where where we're at and whatnot.
1: Maybe That's- tell us a little bit too about both of your, you know, sort of, you know, how you started using drugs and, mm-hmm. and how you managed that in your mm-hmm. in your relationship?
3: Wow, okay. Um, it's a big question, I know. <laughs> yeah. On okay. my behalf, like so. I've tried to minimise like um, any IV drug use, um, mostly because of an impact that occurred with me. I ended up with osteomyelitis, which is a staph infection and, It hit the bottom of my spine. What about when, like, you remember when you were like partying when you were younger? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, like, so that's where I'm at. Like, I just. How
1: old were you when that happened?
3: uh, Last year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, I've recovered remarkably, and um, it's been a bit of Mm -hmm. hard work, and I'm still with the opiate treatment plan. We're just weaning off on 0. 0.4 milligrams. So, so,
1: so what's what's the impact of is osteomyelitis?
3: Yeah, yeah. So, how does that you, present? What what are the outcomes? Oh, you can lose a limb. You can die from it. Um, you can end up becoming paralysed. Yeah. So yeah. were yeah, you, you so
0: definitely. were you IV drug using bef- before that? Yeah. 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 So what what's the history with that? When did you uh, first start doing it's that? It's
3: been off and on, off and on, um, depending on where my emotional state is. Like I generally use when I'm on an emotional low pretty much to like mask those feelings that I find really hard to process, really hard to control. Um, Yeah, because I can easily get distracted with hating the world, which I don't. Um, At at first I didn't,
4: I remember you told me how you used um, like Eckies to just absolutely yeah. party and have a great yeah, yeah. night and you never had yeah. any bad problems with them.
3: Yeah, no, because, yeah. you know, that was the 90s and um, being gay, like being caught up with the dance party, um, you know, era. Yeah. You know, you'd, you'd plan for these events and we would recreationally use ecstasy and um, I've seen some people, you know, like overdo it and but, um, yeah, yeah. Being a yeah. driver as well, taking the risk of driving. Yeah. You know, like you have to keep it together. And, and having um, trouble with your job as well. Like yeah. Like that yeah. was a hard time for um, you, hey. But um, like another occasion when I was in my 20s, I found a friend. This was after a New Year's Eve dance party. So I was still coming down off ecstasy and found my friend hanging off a rope and the police like just about to bag him and all of that type of stuff. And I knew nothing of PSTD or anxiety Um, at that particular point in time in my life. This is like 30 years ago. Whoa. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that impacted me with reoccurring nightmares. I wasn't able to sleep and I ended up like using speed to just go to work and um, my work was fine. Like I was still reconciling hundreds of thousands of dollars and, And no one ever offered
1: you any follow-up because there are those traumas that can happen in your life and you go to expect to walk back into your life the next day. They
3: don't see it. Like, you know, to other staff members, all they could see was that my personality had gone. Yeah. Um, I wasn't interacting as a team member like I used to and I wasn't as bubbly. Um, I was just kind of robotic. I'd go there and work and um, just you know, tell myself, well, I'm not getting paid to be a social butterfly and stuff them until it just became so much. I realised that the drugs weren't working. It was impacting my life. It was going to impact my position at the place that I was employed and I faced them and told them that I had a drug problem, what had happened. Just, they paid for my rehab.
2: Oh, okay. It just goes yeah.
3: to
4: show the willpower, like, you, you know, you using the drugs to, instead of just, you know, stopping like and going, oh, I can't do this anymore, oh, I don't want to do this. It was yeah. you finding like something to cope with like because there was nothing, no one was helping you.
3: Yeah, and, you know, you know in those dark moments you do have really intrusive like thoughts that you just don't want to even like recognise or even accept. It's uncomfortable
4: to talk about them because there's no yeah. comfortable places, is exactly. there? Exactly. Mm. And
1: sometimes, I mean, over and over when we talk to people about their drug use, very often it's around dealing with trauma and pain. Yeah. And people trying mm. to find a way through. Yeah and you go this isn't the narrative that we're told about people who use drugs you know mm, the, mm. this is the narrative that no you don't hear yeah. is it because there's always a stereotype yeah. of that otherizes people and it's but- the
3: narrative that you don't see because the pain yeah. is underneath our skin it's in our mind it crawls within our veins like and it's so much stronger than physical pain like i believe i don't know you know how women like see that because they well, I have different endurance. We, it's, it's about different. what we
4: believe, like, in ourselves, that no one else can mm. judge or um, measure your pain at all. It's uh, well, just, well, it's you know, very, impossible. that's the thing, is
0: it's very personal and often that gets forgotten. It's that everyone is on their own personal path and had different okay. tolerances, different experiences, yep. and different things they're uh, trying to navigate the world with. Hayden, what's, exactly. what's your story?
4: Oh, uh, geez, um, uh, when I was... Um, well, uh, basically, um, it, it all started really when, um, not long after I was born and when I was about 10 years old, um, not the drug use, but the, um, the, the, the trauma behind it. Cause I, um, I, I as a child, I, um, grew up with, um, parents that, um, were, On drugs, they were um, smoking weed, so I was already exposed to it. And I was diagnosed with um, autistic um, spectrum disorder and ADHD at that time. He used heroin too, didn't he? Um, Not at that time, no. no. okay. But, um, yeah, um, I and being diagnosed with those illnesses. I really needed um, uh, a, a lot of time spent with me for um, uh, there to be um, uh, any chance, they said at that time, um, of success. But, yeah. Um, I didn't get that because my, my parents fought a lot. There was a lot of domestic violence, um, I was exposed to as a child. And then, um, my parents split up when I was 10, um, and, uh, then living with my mum and being kicked back and forth between my fathers i never had any security growing up so i never knew where i was going to stay um although i always had my grandmother my grandmother was always there like every um weekend or um when when her partner was away um, cuz her partner absolutely um uh, hated other people um so that stopped um, myself and my grandmother um, from bonding um, and spending a lot of time at that stage. Um, but um, um, when I was a teenager, um, around about 14 after going through um uh, primary school, I I didn't have any friend uh, friends. I was just bullied continuously, and slipped through the system. This and, is because
3: you um, were bullied because of your autism and ADD.
4: Yeah, I didn't fit in. I wanted to, um, you know, talk about um, scientific things, and
1: you would was, have been a really, yeah. You would have thought differently. And kids, yeah. kids are just magnets, aren't oh. they, to oh. identify, <laughs> brutal, aren't they? Yeah. identifying difference. Yeah.
3: And and people with autism also, like their sensory perception, like their level to pain and all of that is so much more heightened than um, yeah. a yeah, you know, I, typical person. I definitely felt that. Um,
4: and uh, I had to, uh, I felt like when I, after I um, went, went into high school, I was on my own. I didn't have any, um, parents like my parents at that stage were still bashing me and, um, kicking me back and forth between, um, each parent and I, I was cause they didn't understand they'd physically take out their anger on me or, and they just expected me to, um, uh, like, um, be normal. And the funny thing is, um, adapt, I did have a lot which, of support through this. Yeah. Like, like I had a psychiatrist and a psychologist all through, um, my younger years until I was about uh, 13 or 14, but none of them ever saw the, um, um, trauma I was experiencing from, um, my father and my mother. So I always just thought it was normal. And then at 14, I was, um, I, um, was kicked into the, relinquished into the Department of Child Safety. And at, at that, at that age, they don't, um, have any foster Like places for you or anything, so I had to grow up really, really, really quick, and I experienced pretty much everything. Like I think everyone's got a limit to like you know when eighty year olds and ninety year olds just kind of they say you know I'm done with life. I I'm happy. I'm 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 I'm, I don't want to say anymore. Like I'm happy. I I feel like um that sometimes um because, because of your depression yeah. yeah but growing up that fast and mm. and seeing wow. all the um things yeah. that I saw and um cuz I didn't have any um uh, it, it, through department of child safety I didn't have any permanent place to stay of a night and we had um and having no friends again um, made it really hard for me. So, so I started using, um, uh, weed. Um, just, um, I don't, I, d- I didn't know it, whether it was for coping back then. I
3: think it was more habitual. Um, to escape. The daily nightmare, the daily grind. It probably just
1: gave you a, like a, a rest.
3: Yeah, I think In it makes
1: sense. I think it just gave me a
4: feeling of love that you, that I never experienced. Like no, like you know, the, just the
0: warmth. Yeah, and- totally. Mm. So you were moving between places. I, I found it really. It's just this ironic title, isn't it? The Department of Child Safety. Safety, privacy, confidentiality. I mean, they are things you should expect from government providers or the health system that are set up to protect individuals. Both Manny and Hayden are significantly vulnerable to his stigma and prejudice. I mean, being gay and injecting drugs puts Manny in pretty high risk for contracting a bloodborne disease. And this could have been handled so
3: much better for him. I was diagnosed with HIV. Um Oh, not that long scary. ago, within like 10 years ago, I remember the doctor coming in, like, um, you know, this was on the seventh day. The third day they told me that I had Ross River virus when I was so sick that I could, couldn't could even stand up. Like I felt like a newborn lamb that was really sick. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the doctor like came into the shared ward and like told my mum and my sister to go and he stood there in front of me with just the curtains drawn, oh, you've been diagnosed with HIV um, with this oh. accent, and I'm just like, oh, my God. Okay, and he went on to say that you have millions of virus, like, all through your body, and I'm just like, oh, my Keeping God. Giving him no like- privacy. No privacy. I would have thought that they, that they would have treated me with some dignity and respect to have like you know had a counsellor there. Yeah, to
1: explain to you what that means. Yeah, yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, and I just signed myself out of the hospital. I couldn't stay there for any like longer because I just the doctor felt you like I.
1: Being, you know but given a death sentence basically well, and like go home. No no options. Like what options? Because there's a treat there's just treatment. So
3: minimized. Yeah. Like um yeah, but Remarkably, like I dealt with it really good and, like, I'm so grateful for the doctor that I have. Um, that's Do you find, it, you of find
1: of a good doctor after that or a doctor that Oh, was yeah, yeah, yeah straight you away. Had a, did
3: you already have another doctor or? No, 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 I just went straight to the sexual health clinic right. and they were just so beautiful and supportive. And, you know, she said to me, look, if you're ever going to get HIV, now is the time because it's just one pill yeah, And every you day. take it every day and, you know, you become safe for other people, safe for yourself, like, yeah.
1: Hayden has had a long history of being misunderstood or mismanaged by the health system. It seems a lot of his trauma has been created by the system where he went to for help. I think it shows a real deficit in the understanding of mental health and drug and alcohol issues, particularly when you're dealing with vulnerable people. I remember,
4: um, when uh, the first time I had a suicide attempt, I was 12 and I was still with my parents and, um, got admitted to hospital, um, numerous times and they, I never received any long-term help. And then after a while, they stopped admitting me. They just said, oh, well, pretty much, uh, I had, I actually had a, a psych reg, um, tell me a few times, um. Uh, well, if you're not if you're not going to do it right here, right now, I don't care because I'm not your long term psychiatrist. Um, and having the stigma of um, autism is really hard as well, um, especially with um, it exacerbates it when um, I've, they find out I'm an IV drug user, and um, they find out that I'm gay, um, It they
3: really, really do, do not treat you with respect. And, and epileptic. So, you know, like he requires turrets for his epilepsy. So
4: Oh, yeah. I've had many times know. where I've had a seizure on the floor in the hospital. Actually, the last time was only um, about five, six months ago mm. in the hospital here um, where they didn't believe me and I had a seizure and they had to have a I had to call a MET call, yeah. had to have a brain scan. I could have suffered brain damage, and they had all my medical history. I told them that I needed the tablet.
0: And so they, they basically said, Oh, well, you're an IV drug user. So yeah, this is obviously a game that you're, this is, this is, you're gaming yeah. the system. Yeah. Yes. And have yeah. you ever gamed
4: the system? I have. I have. I certainly have. Um, so I do understand. To a degree, but I don't understand, um, when the doctors doubt something, they really should believe you 10 times first before they disbelieve you. Even if you are, um, trying to play the system, there, there is more benefit of making it hard for them to play the system, but not, um, um, uh, Not putting getting them to the point where they could have a seizure, like taking so many risks
3: with these patients, Mm. not giving them medication. Yeah, yeah. They just think that at the end of the day, if there's an emergency, then so be it. Like, they're quite willing to just let a person, like, suffer up until the point of an episode where they have to be admitted into, and then we'll treat. I've had times when
4: I've been mistreated. When I was 15, I um, uh, was crying out for help, called myself an ambulance, and tried to get admitted to um, mental health. That was when I was in child safety and um, they made me sit there in the waiting room for five hours and I ended up walking across the road and um, getting on top of the bridge at uh, the train tracks and I was just about to jump and um, the train stopped and I thought, oh, damn it. And I was standing there and the police were there within like three minutes. That's the quickest they've ever ever been there and the negotiator, uh, negotiated with me and said, look, okay, um, this is after half an hour of negotiations. Um, uh, after she said as well, I must note, um, she said, Um, here, have a cigarette, calm down. She handed me my cigarettes. Um, and they said, Okay, well, we're gonna get you into the ward. We'll get you into the ward. I jumped down and next next second um I had the um sergeant cop put his hand um on my shoulder quite firmly and said, Nah, you're going to the watch house, mate. And You're
1: a fifteen-year-old boy, mm,
0: yeah, who's
1: tried to take his life yep. because he hasn't been given help, and then you know, so they—they they were gets aware, so grill. they were aware that
0: you—you you, the reason you were there is that you—you you were trying to get in to get treatment, yes, and they wouldn't take you in, yes, and so um they then take you elsewhere and treat you as a. a It becomes a a civil criminal problem as opposed to a mental health problem. Yes.
4: Mm. And I have actually just recently, it has happened. I could, I could, I I would make an estimate of 30 times that this situation um, has happened. Um, I I do underestimate it just in case, like, um, I am overestimating. But um, just recently, um, I, had a, um, night where I'd used ice, um, and after having an ice addiction, um, in 2000, 28th of February, 2016 was the day I started actually had an ice addiction for nine months and boy, that was, that's a whole different other story, but, um, I had um I I haven't used ice since and um just recently about uh, 9 months ago I did one night and I called an ambulance um for because of the come down and I'd been kicked out of um my home again cuz I I'm always getting I'm always getting kicked out and not not having a, a stable secure place um and um I, when I called the ambulance, um, they, cause I, I, I had trouble with my leg. Um, I said, I need help. Like I can't move. They picked me up by the, uh, they got, they said, we're going to call the cops Were yelling at me, grabbed me by the shirt and ripped my shirt and dragged me across the gutter. My head even, um, hit the gutter after they dragged me, um, off the footpath. Um, got me in the ambulance and I was very cooperative. I was not even angry at them about it and they were still, uh, there was a, um, a student in the back of the ambulance and um, they said, oh, you never know with these with these guys whether they're faking it or they're, they're just drug addicts. And I heard that and I thought that's terrible. That, telling- that hurts. Mm-hmm. I mean it
1: goes in, not just hurts, isn't yeah. it? it goes in deep. Yeah. Because how does that make you feel? Because that almost like it puts how do you turn it, to a it, system It to actually help?
4: I don't feel bad for myself anymore. I feel bad for um the the the, the next generation. Like yeah. I wouldn't want any anyone to go through what I've been through and it it, it hurts that the next generation is gonna go through It's
1: true. Going yeah, that's to as a vulnerable this. person, like you've been a vulnerable child in a system mm. where it, it's not surprising that you end up with a substance issue, but every time you go there, the health system fails yeah. that person.
3: Yeah, miserably yeah. in regards to equality and rights as a human and- person.
4: After and after they um, um of, after they got me to hospital, the nurse said, "Oh, we know him, and um, I know him." I heard because um, I was half asleep. And they put me aside. Didn't bother doing my obs because the um, one of the head, head nurses had said that they know me and um, kept me in there for eight hours um, on on the ramp. Didn't do anything. And then mental health. Um, I said I need to speak to mental health. They said, "Oh, we rang mental health and they said you're fine. We don't wanna, they don't want to see you. We're too busy." And I said, "No, I'm going to kill myself right now." Under the act, like the, the these laws that we're supposed to be abiding by today, state stipulates that if someone is um, threatening immediate suicide, that they should be put under a um, voluntary or involuntary order if they don't agree. Did they act on that? No, they didn't. They wow. um, gave me a taxi voucher and told me that <laughs> they would call the police if I didn't leave. So I thought, oh, good, I'll I'll stay here so they can call the police because I thought the police have. The the power to put me under an EEO, I thought that's yeah. good. I could, they, they will yeah, force they, me they in. they section
0: you in. Hayden tells us he's presented at least 30 times to emergency. It's like the system knows him and how that's become a disadvantage. He's clearly going back there over and over again to get help. So it appears nowhere in the system is there a circuit breaker that acknowledges that whatever health has been doing isn't working for Hayden. A different approach is required, I think. I mean, basically something that looks uh, looks at him as an individual and what the individual issues might be that is driving his behaviour.
1: Yeah, it's it's complex. You know, it's a housing issue. It's a treatment problem. It's a mental health problem. And importantly, you know, it's very much a problem about unaddressed trauma. Emergency departments become a coalface face and it seems um, someone like Hayden is is too hard for the system to triage and it is an emergency. This story is really distressing but it's important. Here is another time when Hayden reaches out.
4: I was in opiate withdrawal and I um, presented to EG after... Um, after um, actually 12 months of being so embarrassed about my um, IV drug use and the um, scars that I've got very visibly all over my arms to um, tell any uh, doctor or healthcare professional that I have an injecting problem. And I finally one day, um, um, because... our house burnt down and we were, um, staying in hotels and myself and my grandmother. And, um, I thought, no, I I need help. I'm going to tell someone. I presented to emergency and I said, look, I'm, I am abusing my medication. I am, I'm so sorry. Like, please, 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 don't judge me or anything. Uh, I, I, I've been um, uh, crushing up my pills and using them. I use one sixty-four milligrams in a day, Um, uh, no more. And um, I really, I'm in withdrawal because um, the doctor's cut me off, and I, I need help. I. I don't want to be on this anymore. Mm. And um, I I was given a bed. Um, The nurses were really kind to me to start off with. They were really, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, uh, Apart from the fact she was looking, it it, it did sound scripted because she was looking at me like um, I was a robot, but... Um the, the, the other nurse, uh, another nurse came and gave me some sandwiches and a drink and I had a rest on a bed and, um, for, no, it was nine hours, sorry. And then they said, look, we're going to admit you up to um, uh, the ward, uh, up to a surgical ward. This is not a mental health ward because they'd promised me the night before um, I was admitted that I would be admitted to the clinic which is a mental health ward, because I was suicidal as well. Um, but they didn't. They put me on. They put me in a ward, uh, surgical ward, with other very sick patients that didn't need um, someone going through withdrawal um, and with high needs, um, disturbing them anyway. Um, and obviously, that can't be helped with opioid use disorder when you're withdrawing. Um, but um, they they were horrible to me. Um, they wouldn't give me my seizure medications, ended up having a seizure. Um, that happened twice. And then my, na- my grandmother was um, visiting me every day um, on day day two i I kept pressing the button and I had to wait an hour and a half before because they ignored the button they kept pulling my buzzer out and I said look i'm I'm, I'm struggling I just I, in a calm voice like I was not escalating at all. Um, just saying, oh, I, can I please speak to someone? Oh, we don't have time. I kept saying, they kept saying, we don't have time, we don't have time, I'm just about to finish my shift. Can you please wait? Yes, okay. And I kept waiting and I kept waiting. And it got to the stage where I was shaking so much and I was in really bad withdrawal that I said to a nurse, um, no, I really need help now. And she goes, well, so you're not going to go... Like going back, go back into your bed and get out of bed. And I said, "Okay, all right, I'll go sit down." Because she was yelling at me, and she said, "If you don't do it, I'll say I'm just going to call security." And then I got up off my bed again to go to the toilet, and she pulled her buzzer down. And I said, "No, I'm just going to the toilet." While she was standing there at the door, um, a meter away from the door, as if I was going to kill her. Like there was so much room away from her she and she was only dealing with me at that time and she was standing so far away it was like I'd had, had a gun or something. Security came running from all areas and they um, pinned me down Um, and put so much pressure on my head, I ended up with bruises everywhere. And this is just after using no force whatsoever. I just, I just said, No, I really need someone to speak to. Right. If you're not, and they said, Right. If you're not, um, gonna cooperate, then we're gonna force you. And they forced me into the bed, gave me a bolus injection of haloperidol, um, to try and state me. That, um, didn't work after half an hour, half an hour being physically restrained by, um, it was five security guards, um, with their, with a lot of pressure. On um, my head because they were using pain um, and they were pinching, um, rubbing my sternum, um, using pain because because in nursing you do actually use pain if a patient becomes unresponsive to to check the level of responsiveness. But they were using it um, to control me um, so I wouldn't yell. Uh, and they kept saying, there's other people here, you need to shut up. And I, I said, please, I was just screaming at please, please, please. So they kept using pain. Then they got me on my um, stomach and after realizing that the bolus dose of um, haloperidol hadn't worked, which... Um, as a nurse, in MIMS, it's the onset of action, um, uh, intramuscular is 15 minutes, and they waited half an hour before they um, were uh, initiated any other sedating medication. Um, they ended up sedating me with ketamine, and I was I was sedated, uh, unconscious for three days, and I would um, wet myself, um, I'd urinated in the bed. My grandmother um, says that I didn't even know who she was, which is which is understandable because of the the ketamine. Mm. Although there was no there was no clinical need to sedate me at all, it was just understaffed, and um, the fact that there's an IV drug user asking for Valium. um,
1: Well, it just escalated beyond. It's well, the
0: system there. Yeah. I mean, I understand some of those protocols and things, but I can see how mm. when you don't listen or you put all those judgment judgments mm. in quite early, you can see how things get out of hand. Yeah. yeah. And a lack of compassion
1: and, and, compassion and understanding. Absolutely. Like yeah. the lack of humanity and yeah. that yeah. is what, you know, I'm a There's mother just, of five
3: kids so I sit there just know, going, but- the lack is yeah. education, because <laughs> without the education, you cannot like build any like effective form of tolerance or compassion.
1: I can imagine it would be very difficult for you to access um, a hospital or for emergency services. I've yep. never since that, since
4: that happened um, nine months ago. Um, I've never um, told another doctor or nurse about my injecting problems again.
1: I I'm too scared. Dr. Carla Trelaw is the Director of the Centre for Social Research and Health at University of New South Wales in Sydney. Her primary area for research and publishing is stigma and how it impacts on people who use drugs. Here she talks about how stigma plays out at an organisational level in the health sector. It's basically the academic reasoning for what keeps happening to Hayden. And we also see
5: stigma in at the organizational level, the ways that policies and procedures in a health service or in a school or education setting or employment setting can, um, shape the way the service or, and the people within it behave. So people who are allowed and not allowed to come to a service, for example, is an absolute, um, obvious one, but what there might be more subtle ways of, um, and we see this a lot in the research literature of people who inject drugs or are perceived to have infectious disease placed last at the on the list of um, going to a uh, to, to get a medical procedure done or they are denied um, access to pain medication if they're perceived to be drug seeking and that might be written into the policies of a particular service so that's the the internalising the interpersonal when you're talking with someone at the organisational level and then at the societal level around laws or high-level regulations or the ways in which media talk about and, and portrays people who inject drugs. And there are numbers of examples of the ways in which um, people with infectious disease or perceived to have infectious disease which is related to injecting drug use um, can be positioned in those high-level things as Less than, not the same as, more negative than the rest of the society. So this is a a complex thing, stigma that we need to be working across all those levels if we we want we want to make a
0: change. It sounds like stability has been a a really important factor that was missing very early on. And what you have, what you've got here is a three year relationship. Hmm. um, Which how's how's uh, your relationship actually? I'd like to say helped. I'd like to say it's helped, you know, but supported each other through through this change. And what's what's your hope for each other?
3: Um, Oh, for a better life, for a happier life, um, you know, and we're just like focusing on growing and um, committing to that. Um, really care about each other a lot. We've got a plan to go to Germany, actually, um,
4: uh, as soon as possible, because in Germany they offer, um, uh, this program, which is heroin assisted treatment and, um, or hydromorphone assisted treatment, which, um, I've, like, I've been told by a psychiatrist that it would be, it, I am, uh, 100% candidate for it, mm. um, and it would make my life so much better.
3: You're pretty much left with the responsibility to, you know, do something about it oh. and on I think, your own. <laughs> I think also parenting is really
4: what it comes down to. Um, I, I could easily say, in my opinion, about 80% um, of the yeah. problems come down to Parenting, family values, yeah, it, 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 all of this, all of these behaviours are uh, stemmed from um, uh, a very young age because at a young age, that's that's when um, it's most important to, um, uh, to you know. Um, Get that um, sense of security, that love, that um, that value, yeah, um, that all of these things. Worthiness, that's, yeah. That's like,
0: that's probably a really nice place to finish it. I think that sense of taking it right back to the beginning of early yeah, intervention yeah, and yeah, how a yeah. good good dose of love and and acceptance and non judgment can, can kind of send us on yeah. our way. Mm. So thank you so much for thank sharing you. so your stories.
4: Thank you. Ah, oh, anytime. You're welcome.
1: Yeah, thank you so
0: much. It was really thank good. you, Mandy. It was, it was very profound. Was great. and. Indeed. Thank you. It's clear from today that we aren't equipped in addressing trauma in people who inject drugs. And that failure, I think, it shows up as a reluctance in that group to reach out to the health system for help. Drug dependence is a health issue. And very often the lines are blurred by mental health issues as well.
1: Stigma is deadly. Even people who work at the Needle Syringe Program say they experience stigma around what they do for work.
6: Well, some, something I've noticed is people um, treat us quite suspiciously because we always seem to be quite happy and enjoy the work that we do. Oh, and you're obviously only... partaking of whatever's around. Exactly, yeah. so they're thinking, how can how can a worker be that happy because it's such a you know <laughs> it's such it's a impossible. great thing to do? But yeah, I've, I've I've been on both sides, so I've worked in drug and alcohol in various um, areas. And NSP workers have always, or back, going back a few years now, or admittedly, have been ex. You know, oh, they've got to be users themselves, or they're just people from NA helping out. <laughs> you know, they they never believe that we could be a professional group. And often, when I do um, um, educational sort of little stints in different places, and and people look at my badge and CRM, they're really really surprised. You know, because they think we're we're not even we're not trained in any way or So we get that that prejudice and that discrimination, I feel.
2: For me, one of the things that I've noticed is that there is a hypervigilance around what I describe my work as, depending on who the audience is. And that's a judgment on my part as well, because I'm like, is this person going to understand if I talk about NSP? Or is it better to start with a softer, I work for the public health unit? or I work for the HIV and related programs unit and then kind of just suss out what you think, um, you know, and again, judgment on my part before I kind of talk about the fact that it's NSP and this is what we do. So yeah, I, I get, and the reason I do that is probably because I'm aware that there is a judgment that comes from working in this space and, for everything that was mentioned before. There is a, there is a perceived lack of professionalism and then um, with certain people that I've noticed, um, they're just they're curious about why you do what you do because it's not seen to necessarily be of value. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the other experiences, just the curiosity of why. It's one of the reasons why it's important for us to start talking about stigma and discrimination that people who inject drugs face is because what we're missing there is the opportunity for them to engage in broader health services by starting off with us
1: today you heard manny and hayden's story next episode we speak with heidi a woman whose chronic pain has led her to injecting drugs
0: Needle and syringe programs, NSPs, are an evidence-based public health program funded to reduce the individual and community harms associated with injecting drug use. Over the last 30 years, NSPs have proven to be very successful in preventing the spread of HIV and viral hepatitis in Australia and globally. To find out more about harm reduction and the strong body of evidence that supports these policies, programs and practices, you can visit the website Harm Reduction Australia.
1: To find out more about childhood trauma and its impacts on individuals and the community, you can visit the Blue Knot Foundation website, www.bluenotknot.org.